This week's press gallery is brought to you by Odyssey Golf. And I got to say, guys, this is a stroke of genius. The new stroke lab putters from Odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke. Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved weight towards the head and the grip. Smart, right? You will feel a difference immediately. And with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new stroke lad from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Available in stores. Learn more about it at odysseygolf.ca. Another quick reminder to subscribe to the Press Gallery wherever you have a podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, and wherever else you happen to be listening to this right now. Leave us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. It does help. And, of course, spread the word to all of your nerdy friends who enjoy hearing about politics. Any questions, comments, or concerns, give me a shout. egraney at postmedia.com is my email, or I'm very easy to find hanging out on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Provincial Affairs reporter Emma Graney. It is Friday, September something, 2019. Sixth. Do you know what date it is? The 6th. It's the 6th. Yes. This is a good team effort here today, everybody. <laughs> this is the McKinnon Panel Panel edition. With me today around the table, in a sense, I have Chris Varco in Calgary. How are you, mate? I'm doing great. Excellent, excellent. I have my legislative reporter, friend, colleague. We are friends. Pal, Claire Clancy. <laughs> yeah. How are you, mate? I'm good. I think I should have brought you a large coffee today. I know, right? <laughs> it's been a weird couple of days. Uh, and our boss, Dave Breckenridge, how are you? Good. Yes. Good. Um, if you weren't following my Twitter account, a cat appeared on my balcony yesterday. And it really threw her off. It's thrown me off mm-hmm. for two days. Yeah. I, like, I live above the 10th floor. You don't expect a cat to just appear on your balcony. An acrobatic cat, to say the least. Very weird. Very, very strange. What colour is the cat? It was was like a Siamese cat. Um, Turns out it belongs to my neighbour. The cat's name is Pippi. And then uh, I now have met my neighbour as a result of her cat being more acrobatic, perhaps, than was good for it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're not here to talk about cats. What we are here to talk about... We are now. (laughs) (laughs) And let's just go on tangents. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing happened this week. <laughs> Nothing so at all happened this week. There certainly wasn't a giant report that it's going to form the basis for four years of the UCP government. Absolutely not. Nothing like that happened. The McKinnon report, of course, is what I am talking about. It was released to the public on Tuesday. Now, the background on this report is that it is a group that was handpicked by the UCP government when they came into power. And the idea was... Hey, guys, go and have a look at Alberta's finances. Find a way to deal with what we think is a spending problem. It was headed up by former Saskatchewan Finance Minister Janice McKinnon, and she's done a lot of these reports before. I mean, generally by conservative governments of one streak or another, she's asked to go and assess what's happening in the finances and find ways to fix it. So she had the same task here, and that's exactly what they did. Now, they prepare their report. Um, Over the summer, they also enlisted the help of accounting firm KPMG to take a big uh, leap into the finances as well. In fact, the KPMG report that accompanied the McKinnon report was, I think, like double the length, uh, which was interesting. He had lots of charts, lots of graphs. And so the government got this report on August 15 and they released it publicly on Tuesday. Of course, the thought is that here, given that the government asked 
Janice McKinnon and her cohorts to do this, the government has said for a long time, this is what we're going to kind of base our government on. These are the choices that we could be making. Now they're being, you know, careful in their language. Finance Minister Travis Taves repeatedly said this week, as did other ministers that I spoke with, we're not sure yet what we're going to adopt and what we aren't. You'll have to wait until after the budget, which is coming out in the fall. Now, Varco, I know that you and I, uh, we read this a couple of times. Um, anything in here surprise you when it came to the recommendations or what was your general impression? No, I can't say that there was anything in here that was surprising or that we haven't probably seen or heard from other reports that were similar in nature. Trevor Toome, the economist from the University of Calgary, did a report last fall that kind of reached similar conclusions on the spending problems. We've seen other think tanks uh, look at some of these issues in the past. I guess what was interesting is the way that it pulled it all together and clearly is laying out a blueprint for the kind of cuts that we should expect to see here, probably not in the budget in the fall because really this fiscal year is, is is essentially halfway over or will be at that point in time. But I think we're going to start to really see the government move more meaningfully in the spring budget likely next year. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that there were a, a ton of surprises. There was some really interesting data in the reports, specifically in the KPMG report. I mean, you could have gotten lost reading <laughs> all like tons of tons of interesting info around like the performances of Alberta compared to other provinces and Alberta post-secondary institutions. But as Chris said, there wasn't a lot that we haven't heard before. And speaking of Trevor Toome, I did find it interesting because this report garnered a lot of controversy, uh, specifically for those that follow the the AB Ledge hashtag on social media, which, you know, for your own mental health, I don't always recommend it. But <laughs> he, he, he raised a good point is that, you know, don't judge it based on just the recommendations or the coverage, although we had great in-depth coverage, I must say. Uh, but read the report with an open mind, because there are some interesting things in there that I think that warrant further discussion and that people can discuss without losing their minds over. Yeah, reasonably on social media. No, eh, I know. <laughs> You're funny, Dave. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think we should point out maybe some of the major things that we're going to see yeah. come out of this report. So like, for example, the report points out that um, 42% of the operating budget for the Alberta government is health. Uh, it looks like a lot of the recommendations revolve around overhauling the health system. One a particular recommendation that was interesting was renegotiating the contract with the Alberta Medical Association around physician compensation and um, potentially also changing nurses' duties, um, increasing scope of practice perhaps. There were some really interesting um, interesting ideas around health. Uh, and then moving on, we also saw very specific recommendations for education and mm -hmm. post-secondary education and then capital planning. Yeah, the post-secondary stuff and the education stuff was very interesting. So over in the education realm, um, the bulk of the recommendations did center around the post-secondary mm -hmm. field. So for example, we had, we had a really interesting recommendation. This was probably the most, well, one of the more surprising ones for me was this idea of financially assessing the viability of Alberta's 26 universities or post-secondary institutions rather. And there were these charts that accompanied that that I had never seen before, which was the dropout rate at universities. And Athabasca only has something like a 
40% completion rate or something. That like doesn't that. surprise me being online, that most though. of it's online. Yeah, um, but that idea, but yeah. it did surprise me that they even floated this idea of basically closing universities or defunding universities that don't, um, that are not up to standard or that don't fit in with a larger plan, which was another recommendation We need that Alberta needs to have a plan when it comes to post-secondary. Um, there's too much uh, crossover they found with programs, which was weird to me. I mean, I went to university in... Um, in Brisbane, Australia, my hometown. Now, there are oh, a ton of universities there, but there were three that had journalism programs. Um, I did a year at one, and then I upgraded to a different program at a different university, but they all had different strengths, different weaknesses. So I, I'm not sure about crossover being such a terrible thing, but it was something that the panel seemed to think was bad. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think the finance minister has reiterated since the report came out that the province is looking at um, having a whole new post-secondary funding model. Yep. And he and what I think is important to note about that is that's going to have massive implications for post-secondary institutions, but it sounds like the government wants to tie um, funding in some way to potentially labor market outcomes yeah. and jobs. And so that's, yeah, that was something we kind of saw the um, finance minister double down when he was speaking at Chambers of Commerce this week um, in Alberta. Well, based how many kids, based on how many uh, students of mine, uh, classmates of mine from the journalism program at McEwen who are actually working in journalism, that doesn't <laughs> bode well for the state of that program if that's what they're going to base it on. Um, <laughs> Wait, what are you talking me, about, Dave? This me, is not a dying a, industry. Me and a couple other people. Um, <laughs> You know, there there was some interesting stuff. I mean, the idea that they want to rely less on government grants and more funding from tuition and alter alternative revenue sources. I Universities in Canada, I, it can be challenging, right? Like, what are other revenue sources? Do you get corporate sponsorship of research chairs? Do you get uh, alumni donors? I think that you look at things universities in the States where they, a lot of alumni donors help support athletics programs and they have a more robust system. I don't know if that's something that universities here could manage. I don't, you know. I don't know. Well, and, and it was interesting too, in K-12, they talked about overhauling the entire funding formula and tying it to student performance um, or the performance of school boards at the very least, which is an interesting way to go, considering everything that's happened in the in the US, where that has had horrible implications for schools and for school boards and for learning outcomes of kids. You have everything from, you know, teachers fudging exam results. You have teachers basically just doing nothing but teaching rote results so that the kids can do well on set exams and stuff. And that's actually been a really, really terrible, terrible way of doing it down in the States. But it also talks about reviewing and revising the K-12 funding formula to ensure enrollment growth is addressed and provide incentives for sharing services. And those yeah, are things that good. we, we've, you know, there, uh, this is the thing about the report is everyone is like, oh, there have been groups who've said it's all bad and it just sets the stage for horrible cuts. Well, it does talk about needing to cut from the budget to get Alberta's budget balanced again. But it also brings forward ideas that have been discussed by other groups, sharing of services between the Catholic and public systems. I know that the recommendation doesn't specifically mention no. Catholic or public, but it's something that school boards need to look at. And whether it's sharing busing services or building joint schools that share gym and library space, like those are things that actually are good ideas to explore. And speaking to that point, Dave, and to this idea of everyone getting their knickers in a knot about everything in that report, I mean, the NDP brought in a bill under David Egan when he was the education minister about sharing services that gave 
the education minister the power to kind of say, oi, you're going to do it, you're going to share your busing, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. I mean, that was something that the NDP came up with and were working towards. So, yeah. you know, there are some interesting ideas in there that that are definitely worth exploring further, I think. Um, Varco, <laughs> when it comes to recommendations, what other areas really stood out to you? Because I know we're kind of doing a bit of a you know, all over the shop here, but rounding up some of the other recommendations, what did you like well, or not like? <laughs> just to go back to your point on post-secondaries, what really struck me on the language and some of the recommendations, when you start to talk about assessing the future funding scenarios and the viability, the, the financial viability of institutions, you're really saying that everything is on the table, that there are no sacred cows. You know, when they talk about things like alternative healthcare services or trying to ratchet down doctor salaries. These are things that have not occurred in this province in more than a decade. I mean, I can remember when the Klein government uh, brought in double-digit pay raises for the doctors with AMA contracts because they wanted to pull more doctors and more specialists into this province in the early 2000s. So everything is on the table. And that's, I I think that's what's really sort of uh, most compelling when you read this all, the thing that sort of uh, drives home is just the fact that they're looking at everything as it relates to these three areas, whether it's K to 12 or healthcare or post-secondary. I mean, you're talking about legislative mandates for salaries for public services. Oh, and by the way, if we can't get a deal, this will form the basis for back to work legislation. You don't, you know, you don't have to read between the lines. That's that, those are the lines in the document if you're in the public <laughs> service. So, um, Everything is on the table. It's interesting to see the government's reaction. We haven't heard anything yet from the premier. Uh, I find that kind of curious. I think maybe they're testing the waters to see here what what plays well and what doesn't. And I think that's the phase we're in right now is the minister's on a roadshow to see how well these recommendations uh, play out. And I think it'll be interesting to see as well. Um, the finance minister, you know, he's made this statement saying every department in the government has been overspending. So as Varco said, it's completely broad-based what what they potentially will be looking at. But part of the recommendations in the report are also doing these reviews of every single ministry and department. And so that's a hu- that has huge implications as well if every ministry is under a review from potentially a third party looking at how they're spending money. And not just every department and ministry, but every single program and service. Right, So yeah. that's literally everything that the government does the McKinnon panel says the government needs to go back and look at it which is which is funny though the idea that and maybe i'm just giving government too much credit but shouldn't Don't that be that, something Dave? governments do all the time <laughs> you would, anyway you would think <laughs> Are, is this but program working? Don't. Are we are we getting value for our money? Are the are we meeting the goals that we're mm-hmm. setting out to achieve with this program or this piece of legislation? And and has it worked? And could we get better results? Could we get better outcomes by changing the funding or changing the programming or or mixing things up? Mm-hmm. Don't like that. Just makes sense. It does make sense, but I mean. Uh, I'm going to liken this to kind of like workplace performance reviews. Yeah. It's something that, you know, every now and again, you'll have a manager come in and be like, we're all going to improve ourselves. We're going to assess where we are in six months and then 12 months and we're going to meet these goals. And then everyone just forgets about it, flies off the mm-hmm. table and goes, Matt, let's just keep on At doing it. At least in journalism. The way that we're doing it. <laughs> no, I've worked in other industries where it's exactly the same thing. Like in retail, um, you know, at a bar I worked at that they were doing these. I don't know why you do it at a bar, but there you have it. When I worked in the legal field as well. Well, and it's just one of those things, Dave, that people want 
to look at. They want to think that they're going to review them, but it just ends up being less of a priority and so it never ends up being done. But to the program reviews, it was interesting too because there was a line in there that said not just it's it was speaking to the idea of vulnerable Albertans and I'm using that as a direct quote from the report that of course we want to protect services for vulnerable Albertans but only those that are doing what they're supposed to do and getting the desired outcomes which is really interesting language because it 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 kind of it almost hedges the bets in a way, you know, like you can... Or shifts responsibility potentially. Exactly. And, and yeah. I mean, what are the goals of the program? And there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of worry, particularly around the persons with uh, developmental disabilities file mm-hmm. of some of those supports not getting to people who need them or not getting there in a timely manner. And then, you know, caseworkers were telling clients and clients' families, look, we're getting told on the slide that there are going to be program cuts, that there's a, that there is a freeze on spending. And so, I mean, that's a very real example of a program. Um, and I mean, the UCP has kind of said, you know, the minister said, well, you know, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna assess things and see maybe, is there something that works better? Are there programs that do a better job delivering the services, but then you need to set the the goals of what services exactly and what you know, what goals are you looking for here? And the, and the problem with a report like this is it sets out pretty starkly, you know, Janice McKinnon said, Alberta spends too much money. It's not an issue of taxes. We need to cut spending. Here are my recommendations to cut $600 million a year out of the budget uh, and to revamp how the government delivers services and to make a whole bunch of changes. And now we have to wait six weeks for a budget. It leaves a lot of uncertainty in a lot of groups and and people, I think, justifiably are wondering, well, is my salary going to be cut? Is my program going to be cut? And I, you mm-hmm. know, it's, if some of this is a trial balloon to see what's popular and what's not, I mean, that's, I guess that's good politicking, but it's bad. <laughs> it's bad for the people who, whose work depends on it. And it's important to point out as well, we're in a city in Edmonton where a lot of people's salaries do depend on the public sector. Yeah. Um, so I think particularly in Edmonton, there's a mood of uncertainty and, you know, questioning about what exactly this all means. What about, Varko, what's happening down in Calgary, mate? Is there still that same kind of uncertainty or that worry about it? Or is that kind of confined to Edmonton? Well, I think the it's probably more confined to Edmonton just because that's where so much of the civil service is located. But I think there's a lot of people, a lot of social groups who, are, who are, as you mentioned, are, are very nervous about what this means. I, I wanted to double back, though, to, or, or go back to one of those points, though, about it. when you read the report in its totality, I think everybody would come to the same conclusion, which is we have a problem. We have a budget problem, a structural deficit, right? I think it concludes at one point that if uh, we had uh, the same kind of spending patterns as the three largest provinces in the country, we would be spending $10 billion less. So there, it seems to me that they've defined what the problem is, but the question is, what's the cure? And I think as everybody has now realized is that this is only focusing on the spending side of the equation, not on the revenue side. You know, if you look at last year's budget, it points out the fact that if uh, we had the same tax rates as British Columbia or Saskatchewan, we'd be raising $11 billion in additional revenue. And McKinnon and, and the minister were very clear in saying, look, we're only looking at the spending side, but it does seem like one part of the conversation is not being had here. And that is, 
what is going on with the revenues. We rely on volatile oil and gas revenues where our revenue sources are three to five times more volatile than every other province. And there's kind of a line in that report which which says, you know, we need to look at the revenue mix. And I think it talks about the stability of the revenue sources. So that's a curious line that uh, that that really caught my attention. Yeah, 100% that that whole revenue question, because they, like, you know, Janice McKinnon kept saying, we, we weren't looking at the revenues, we weren't looking at the revenues. And it's like, dude, there's like eight pages about revenues in the in the freaking report. Yeah. But also in the press conference, um, Varko, it might have been you even that asked this when about raising taxes and why don't we just raise taxes? And she got very defensive about that. I thought I was I was called in from Edmonton, and she said we do not need to raise taxes. There is not a shred of evidence to support increasing taxes. That's exactly what she said, right. and I thought that was really really interesting. Yeah, I mean they're trying to they're trying to say, and we we talked to Travis Tays after he uh, spoke to the Chamber of Commerce the following day about these issues, and they said, look. You know, they, they, they don't even think that should be on the table. We clearly have a spending problem when we're spending uh, so much more than these other provinces. Um, I think probably Janice McKinnon would say, well, you got to do the first part first, which is cut spending, and then you can look at the revenue mix. But I think there's a lot of other people who are saying, why wouldn't you have this conversation in its totality? Mm-hmm. I, will, I will say it's interesting that, you know, the week that the McKinnon report came out, the, the University of Calgary School of Public Policy released a report saying that uh, provincial sales tax and carbon levy are needed to help bring uh, Alberta's <laughs> books back into balance. Yes, nothing says nothing says PST like we need to have a stable revenue source. Well, oil and gas revenues aren't stable. What is stable? Well, your corporate income tax, which we know they're going to cut, personal income tax, which they know they're not going to raise. That pretty much leaves you with a consumption tax. And economists love a consumption tax. But can anybody... Imagine the Kenny government even considering for a moment a PST, not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, if they turned around and lowered personal income taxes, they may get some political coverage from that. But yeah, you don't necessarily see it happening. Oh, uh, no, I can't see that happening at all. Chris, you really delved into this whole path to balancing. We talked about a little bit there about revenues, but there was more to it than that, wasn't there? Yeah, it's interesting as they look at where we are right now financially and the deterioration in Alberta's financial position, even since the third quarter update. That was the last update done by Joe Sisi in February. And it talked about how the revenue situation has deteriorated. The economy has slowed down. I think most people would acknowledge that that's an issue. Um, And then it comes up with what they see as sort of a scenario to a path for balance. And they say that, you know, within four years, we can get to a path to balance. But you can only do that by cutting at least $600 million in operating spending. Mm -hmm. I believe it works out to something like $6 billion in less spending than was originally planned over four years. And by the end of year four, you get to a very skinny surplus of about $100 million. So it says it is possible but the real key issue there is not only are we freezing spending, we're going to roll back operating spending by $600 million. And the finance minister said here in Calgary the following day that he actually thinks it has to be more than $600 million. That's really tough when your healthcare budget is traditionally going up by 3 to 5%. And 70% of your budget is coming from those three core areas of post-secondary education, K-12 education, and healthcare. And yet, though, they also continue with the line, we're going to maintain or increase funding for education and health and find efficiencies. And that continues to be 
the party line that they're taking, mm-hmm. which is what they said during the campaign as well. So we'll have to see how it all plays out. At least they didn't promise that no one would lose their jobs like uh, <laughs> yeah. Doug Ford did in Ontario. Speaking of reaction to this report, we're not hearing a lot, are we? I think from some groups are being very measured in their response. For example, now I want to take the capital spending part of this report. The thing that stood out to me there was there was a whole swack of swack, eh, thwack, you know, Schwack. stack. There was a bunch of recommendations about capital spending in municipalities. One that stood out to me was um, municipalities should shoulder more of the cost of major capital projects. I can't imagine that's going to make municipalities happy, but AUMA, uh, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, and also RMA, the Rural Municipalities of Alberta, like, they haven't really weighed in. And what's interesting, though, is I agree. I think a lot of people are taking a very measured approach to yeah. this. But some people that aren't doing that as much, which is maybe not a surprise given the court battle that we saw over Bill 9. But unions are being quite outspoken against issues with this. And one of the kind of strongest interviews I had this week was with, um, like probably unsurprisingly, the head of the Alberta Federation of Labor, Gil McGowan. Not surprising who, at all. <laughs> he said that um, he believed the report was founded on a hatred for the public sector. And that was extremely strong language. I've also talked to, I've heard from the Alberta Medical Association, which posted on their website saying, um, you know, that they're basically taking a look at the report, but they already do have some issues with it. And um, the United Nurses of Alberta also said the same thing. So it's, um, yeah, it's been interesting seeing kind of the union reaction as well. Yeah, in the post-secondary realm, I know there was a press release came out yesterday and it was just kind of very... This is so. But this is so university. This is classic universities. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Don't even growl at it. Don't even look at it. Just lick it and be like, "We love you. Keep feeding us." And that is the reaction we're seeing from universities or post-secondary kind of representative groups as well. Um, there, are, of course, economists did weigh in and and political scientists, as you might think, and of course the NDP. Um, interestingly, the Alberta Party. Of course, they don't have a seat right now, but politically, they sent out a press release saying. Yeah, there are some very worrying things in there, <laughs> but, and this is classic Alberta party, but there's stuff we like as well because, you very, know. Very, very on the fence there. <laughs> it was very, very centrist of them. Well, I, I think this is one of those reports, like, again, on the, the notion of mandated uh, legislative mandates in, when it comes to salaries for public sector workers, I can understand why unions may get their backs up about it. But it is a a broad, wide-ranging report. So there are going to be groups that are going to say like, yeah, these are good ideas. Keep these. Don't do these. I think there you could even see people in conservative circles saying, yeah, these are great. Do these. Don't do these. Maybe someone somewhere is saying, bring in a HST. Who knows? <laughs> like, But, you know, I, I did find it interesting on the, the municipalities front, the fact that they are being measured. Because I know, I know that... It, Cities and towns in Alberta for a long time have said we need a stable, predictable funding base when it comes to building infrastructure, especially for places like Edmonton and Calgary, which shoulder a heavy capital uh, load. They have more capital projects. And right now you have uh, mayors in both cities looking to expand LRT services. I know Edmonton's a little farther along on its next LRT leg and, and Calgary is still trying to get its its green line going. Chris, I'm curious because I know Edmonton's mayor is pretty, his response is pretty tame so far. But when it comes to Calgary and its green line, has Mayor Nahed Nenshi kind of stepped up and, and said anything related to Calgary having to share more of a, a burden on that? 
Oh yeah, he's been very vocal. Uh, he didn't. He, he wasn't being cautious at all. He said, uh, "You know, we've already taken our hit as municipalities. We've already seen our grants pulled back, uh, and that it's ridiculous that the government would even consider this." So he's yeah. There's there's no timidity here uh, coming from the city of Calgary. Um, it was interesting that at the Chamber of Commerce speech the very next day after the McKinnon panel report was out. Uh, I noticed Travis Taves and uh, Mayor Nahad Nenshi were speaking together, and they seem to be getting along just famously. But I wonder what the conversations will be like behind closed doors. You know, the the idea that they would pull back on the funding, particularly with the MSI funding coming up for renewal, I think has got has got to have this city of Calgary worried. They're already uh, spent or have commitments to spend money on things like the Green Line, or a new hockey rink, or the Arts Common facility here in Calgary, or the new. Uh, uh, the new convention center. So there's a lot of commitments that they want to do, but they're not going to be able to do it if the province pulls back on capital spending. And it seems pretty clear that the recommendation from the McKinnon report is, is that that needs to happen. We need to spend less on capital, less on capital stock. There's a line in there as well about, you know, reassessing the amount of stock that we have here and including in things that, you know, land assets that belong to education and health and then making it easier to sell sell those off for revenue for the province or for that kind of thing. So that kind of harks back to Jason Kenney's plan pre-election to sell off land up in peace country, mm-hmm. 120,000 hectares or something like that, acres whole bunch of land. And, you know, that didn't really resonate particularly well at the time, but I'm interested to see how that kind of folds into this, into this whole, into this whole plan. The other part here that I want to briefly discuss was legislation. Um, That came up a few times in the report, not only about this legislating um, public sector salaries and that kind of thing, that was one of them, but also a legislative fixed budget date was another thing. And then if they can't reach an agreement with the AMA, the Alberta Medical Association for Doctor Pay, hey, legislate that as well. Did it surprise you to see that kind of legislation argument kind of scattered throughout the report? No, I think it basically says that there's a big hammer overhead. And if they can't get the... uh if they can't get the labor negotiation contracts that they want, they're going to follow the path of provinces like Manitoba and Saskatchewan, which have just brought down a, a back-to-work piece of legislation or, or basically mandated, here's what you're going to get, sue us. Uh, and, and I think that's where we're going to end up here, unless I'm mistaken. But I think that the intention very clearly here is to try and uh, scale back the amount of money that they spend on, on salaries. I mean, we all know it's the largest component of the budget is, is spent on salaries. So if you're going to cut six or seven hundred million dollars out of operating expenses, it's going to have to come from there. The other thing that you did mention that I thought was interesting and kind of got overlooked was there were some calls for increased transparency in the budgeting process, as you said, establishing a fixed budget date. I like the idea of contracting a what they call a reputable independent agency <laughs> to provide an assessment every four years of our financial situation just before an election. But uh, I think as journalists and as members of the public, we all love to see more transparency and a sort of a clearer snapshot of uh, where the province's finances sit. 100%. And I, I did speak very briefly with the finance minister, Travis Taves, yesterday, and he told me that, yeah, they are considering a fixed budget date. And in fact, they were talking about it before it was even a recommendation from the panel. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to me as well. But yeah, Transparency, I think, is a big part of this report. It was scattered throughout in a whole bunch of different sectors, healthcare, um, just balancing the balancing the coffers, you know, that kind of thing. So 
you know what? More transparency, I think, can only be a good thing for government. Okay, let's move over to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things that we've read or seen or listened to lately that we think you might also enjoy. Clancy? Um, I'm going to recommend a book, which I actually recommended to Emma earlier, but um, it's very relevant uh, right now. So uh, people probably know by now that um, the former leader of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, has died at age 95, an extremely controversial figure. Um, And I had the pleasure of spending a few months in Zimbabwe in 2014. It's one of my favorite countries. and he, his presence is kind of scattered throughout the public consciousness because he was known as the leader of liberation there, but also um, became a dictator and an extremely hated figure um, t- as well th- t- for his last decades in power. Anyway, one of my favorite memoirs is by a journalist called Peter Godwin, who worked for National Geographic. Um, he was born and raised in Zimbabwe, and uh, the book is called When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, and it's a really fantastic read and particularly relevant right now because of this news from today. I'm going to recommend a series from Walrus Magazine called Dirty Money, Seven Cases of Global Corruption. It is Really awesome. I've only just started it. They're kind of seven big long reads about corruption around the world. We're talking about Thailand with the Red Bull kid, um, the Red Bull heir who uh, apparently killed or allegedly killed a, a policeman with his car and has he got away with it or not. Uh, we're talking about the SNC-Lavalin fair, obviously, in Canada, um, corruption in China and how they're cracking down on it or are they? It's really, really interesting. There's a lot to delve into there. Highly recommend it. Dave? All right, I'm going to recommend a it's a it's I don't know if I'd call it good stuff because it's a bit of a downer. It's <laughs> it's a piece from the Atlantic that I had bookmarked over the summer and I just finally got around to reading it this week. It's called An Epidemic of Disbelief: What New Research Reveals About Sexual Predators and Why Police Fail to Catch Them. And I can't remember if it was a Vox podcast episode of Today Explained or if it was Crime Town season 2 because it, that season was set in Detroit because it it kicks off with Detroit and thousands of cardboard boxes of untested rape kits just sitting in a warehouse with broken windows and and how the political will uh, to finally get around to testing them and reopening some uh, old investigations helped catch people that uh, they didn't realize were serial predators until they did these tests. And it also talks about how they uh, came up with, they kind of broke old assumptions about who is a serial predator and who's not. It's like I say, it's, it's a harrowing read. It's not light reading, uh, but it's very important and very compelling. Thanks Dave. Now, before we go, uh, I am actually heading to Africa tomorrow for a few weeks on a interesting family vacation kind of situation. Um, and this is going to be my final podcast with Claire Clancy. Yeah. I'm so sorry to tell you all. Claire it's the Clancy, end of an era. Clancy is leaving me. I'm I taking am. this very personally. I'm leaving the Edmonton Journal after three years here, uh, two years at the ledge, and I'm going to be traveling for nine months. And then who knows? She's leaving me to travel the world. <laughs> I, I mean, as ex- far as excuses go, Clancy. Well, I think <laughs> as pe- people probably know from listening to this podcast that Emma and I are very, very good friends outside of work. We are. Um, we've worked together in Saskatchewan and now in Edmonton. And it's really the highlight of my job here is that I get to work with one of my closest friends. But um, yeah, I know that next time we see each other, we'll be somewhere cool and we'll probably be traveling somewhere amazing and we'll just randomly see each other. So, so what have, have you liked anything about? 
about covering Alberta politics. <laughs> Man, what is there not to like? You know, it's been really interesting. I think that um, the last over the last couple of years, I would say the highlight for sure was the month long election period. Um, you and I worked oh, yeah. really hard during that month. I think I've never slept less. Um, but it was that was a really awesome highlight of my career in journalism so far, for sure. Um, just a really interesting election. We got to travel around the province. I felt like I really got to speak to people from all walks of life in Alberta about what the priorities are for them. So I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, and I think other than that, I probably my highlight of working in Alberta has actually been um, that, especially within the first year or two that I was at the Journal, I got a chance to write a lot about Indigenous communities and mm -hmm. write about Indigenous issues in the province. And as someone who was born and raised in Calgary, I re really never had had that opportunity before, um, which, you know, is a shame. And I feel like I learned so much from the stories of, of speaking to um, First Nations across the province. Mm -hmm. um, so Clancy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I've loved having your office next to mine. We often yell at each other we just do. through our doors. I know. Clancy, what do you think about the blood? What the good that? news is we have a dinner party together tonight. We do so have a dinner party together. This isn't goodbye. Tonight. Yeah, this is not goodbye. I yeah. haven't packed for Africa yet. Yeah. So so it's going to be a late night. It's going to be a great <laughs> dinner party tonight. Yeah. Um no, it's been a pleasure working with you. So thank you yeah, for being you too. I'm so going to cry. Okay. Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. I'm going to cry. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Claire Clancy, even though you're leaving, Chris Varco in Calgary and Dave Breckenridge. We will potentially be back next week. I will be away. But if I'm not here, someone else may be able to take over the hosting duties. So do check your uh, podcast feeds as always. That's why you, you should subscribe because then you get the latest episode right to your device. Any questions, comments or concerns, do reach out. egraney at postmedia.com is my email. You can find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Thanks for listening.